Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nikrita, your host. Very happy to be with you today, and thank you for tuning in. We are coming to the end of our series uh, from the beautiful book of Hebrew. But again, today, we are inviting you to be with us and stay with us for the whole uh, program, because you'll enjoy this uh, program about Let Brotherly Love Continue. Our panel today is uh, formed by Will. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. I can admit that uh, every chapter of the book of um, Hebrews, as we've studied it, has uh, challenged me to live a little closer to the Lord. And I hope it's so with the panel and with every listener as well. Thank you, Will. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. It's, uh, again, great pleasure to be here. Len, it's good to have you with us also. Thank you for your welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. Lija, thank you for being part of this. Thank you so much. I feel very blessed. Ken, it's also good to have you joining. Thank you, Nick. Always a privilege to be here and looking forward to this week's study on uh, the Book of Hebrews. And Brenton, thank you for coming with us. It's good to be uh, here, Nick, and be able to share this because ethical behaviour, I believe, is very important in the day and age in which we live as, as Christians. And Helen, thank you for uh, joining us. And most of all, thank you for preparing this uh, Bible study, facilitating today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. It is a delight to be here. And I found this this chapter particularly applicable for this day and age, especially in our churches and amongst our family and friends. So thank you for the opportunity of leading out. And it's over to you. Helen, please take us through. Thanks, Nick. Paul finished his speech and the book of Hebrews by giving some advice on daily Christian living, how we should behave every day as our eyes are fixed on Jesus and what attitudes we should avoid and which ones should we learn. Paul encouraged us to begin preparing for eternal life today. In fact, he said in Hebrews 13, 14, he said, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The letter as a whole is a word of exhortation or advice, encouragement. And um, however, before we get into this chapter, and we're going to look at it fairly in depth, um, Lydia, I ask you, would you pray for us, please? Sure. Glorious Father in heaven. We come in here before you to thank you so much for this, another opportunity to be able to open your holy word and sit at your feet and learn from you. Father, please bless us with your Holy Spirit and let us remain in your presence and teach us, Father, from your holy word and uh, help us, Father, to let our character be transformed by you for a total, complete transformation, to become holy as you are holy. Please bless the audience, every soul that is listening to this discussion and touch their hearts, Father, to long to recognize Jesus and accept Jesus as their Savior. Father, please stay with us. Bless us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. 
While Paul encourages his audience to practice mutual love, he does not expect a certain emotional sentiment. Rather, he exhorts them and us to specific actions. So I'm going to ask Will to share three of these practical examples that Paul gave us on how brotherly love can be put into practice. Thank you, Will. I'd like to read uh, Hebrews 13 and verses 1 to 3, Helen. Keep on loving one another, he says. As brothers and sisters, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have or help one another, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Um, What I get from these is uh, three basic principles of uh, good Christian living. The first was to show hospitality and uh, to remember those who are suffering or in prison, those that are mistreated, and then finally to do good and share what you have or help one another. Good principles to live by. And I discovered a little statement by Charles Spurgeon where he says, Being likely, therefore, to take your own turn of suffering and to need the sympathy of your fellow Christians. And then this line, show sympathy to others while they need it, and they will gratefully remember you when you are in bonds or in adversity. Thank you so much, Will. When you were talking about remembering the prisoners and, um, you know, going and, and ministering to them, I was reminded just recently that I, I was uh, privileged to be on Kangaroo Island to do some outreach. And our speaker of the day, who is a colleague, um, he actually gave his testimony. And part of his testimony, which I didn't know, um, was before he became a Christian. He was in prison um, five times. Um, so he was learning his lessons very slowly. But the interesting thing is when he gave his life to the Lord, he went back into the prisons the same prisons, to share with them the love of the Lord and and to minister them. And that really touched my heart. Len, you wanted to comment. Yes. In having sympathy for other people, it seems then we have experienced certain things ourselves, for example, illness, and then we talk to somebody who's ill, and if they recognise that we've gone through the same thing, it seems to uh, build a bond much more quickly and much more strongly than if you've never had anything go wrong with you and there's somebody who's perhaps suffering with cancer or whatever it is. The, instead of being a bond, there's a kind of a division. So I imagine the Lord allows some of these things to happen to his people so that they're in a position to show more empathy because they've experienced the same thing to other people. I think that's so true, Lynn. I know in my own life I haven't enjoyed everything I've been allowed to go through, 
but I've certainly been able to um, understand a lot of other people through it. Um, Brenton, you wanted to say something. Just briefly, what Will read in regard to remembering prisoners and the mistreated, this would be something that would be very close to Paul's heart because, as we know, he did actually compose some of his epistles while he was in prison. And often he says to pray for us, uh, but he never prays about his condition. He never prays about the fact that I'm in prison, I'm in chains. He, he never um, complains about this. He simply says, pray that I may have the strength to give the gospel as uh, God would have me to give it. And I think when he's talking about this, he's probably remembering some of his own experiences and uh, saying it's, as Len said, we can empathise, but unless we've been through the same experience ourselves, it's not the same thing. But he's trying to, I think, see that the depth of brotherly love that he's talking about is deeper than just a superficial love. Amen. Um, I'd like to um, take this a little further with keeping in mind those who are in prison and I think a, a modern con, a, a modern take on this would be: What about all the people that are perhaps lonely, living solitary lives, or might be in nursing homes? People who um, are just on their own, and yes. they're, they form a, they form a prison. This is a, a form of a prison for them. And um, we might not be able to go and visit people in prisons, you know, each one of us, but we do have people who are lonely around us. Now, I say that as much to myself as anyone else, and just to keep them in mind and to do what we can and to have empathy for them and to brighten their day, perhaps. Yeah, thank you, Joe. That comes in line with what um, Will mentioned in Hebrews 13, 16, of being good and helping one another, like the golden rule you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto us. Nick, you wanted to say something. Yes, it just uh, was very good to hear, you know, everyone saying that how important it is to experience yourself and then share. I would like to also add here that Paul has in mind, I believe also, when he addressed as we believe was like a sermon, uh, believe um, these people in Hebrew, to put on Christ, regardless of what experience you have, regardless if you've been through some difficult times, regardless if you want others to do to you, you know, what you're supposed to do to them. I believe the most important thing, what Paul was trying to pass on and uh, to raise, you know, to the bar, if you like, was to put Christ on. Christ was their example and is ours too today. And in other parts of the Bible, Paul said that the only thing which he wants to know about his brethren was to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because Jesus showed empathy, showed care and all those things. Himself not going necessarily through, um, through the struggles of, uh, of sin, even though sin was pressing upon his shoulders like the sin of the world, and we'll deal with that uh, maybe a bit later on. But yeah, I think if some people today may think, ah, uh, what to share? Because I haven't been through uh, this or that. We need to share Jesus Christ and uh, receive, if you like, that love from Jesus to be able to share it with others. 
Thank you, Nick. Does he not say, um, when you do the least to these, my brethren, you have done it unto me? And I think we need to remember that as well. Okay, let's move on. There are some serious issues, though, that threaten brotherly love, which Paul brings up, such as immorality and covetousness. And I'm going to ask Brenton and Ken if you could share these with us, please. Yes. Um, Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Helen, in order to understand what he's saying here and also in Colossians 3.5, we need to understand a little bit of the sexual mores of the Roman Empire at that time. Same-sex relationships were considered to be quite okay. Um, it was okay for a married man to consort with prostitutes. And you had something called pedestry that was very common in the Roman world. That was an older man having an illicit sexual relationship with young boys. Now, all of this stuff was playing out in the Roman world. In addition to that, uh, if you're a male or a female in the Roman world, getting a divorce from your husband or your wife was pretty easy. You could get a divorce on just about any grounds. I believe what Paul is doing here is he's holding up marriage as a standard. He's saying marriage is honourable. I want you to remember that what you practised in the past, you're not practising now. First Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says much the same thing. Uh, the bottom line is that he's saying, as followers of Christ, as people who have been changed, we are called to a higher standard. Paul is holding up marriage, the relationship between men and women, the biblical relationship. He's holding this up and saying it is honourable and that any other form of relationship God will judge. I think that's fairly important today. Whilst we are to be um, empathetic, to those who are struggling in these areas, we still need to look at what God's standard is. And uh, he's holding that up here by saying the marriage bed is pure. He's saying the relationship should be between a husband and a wife solely. And uh, I believe um, it's a challenge because what we're living in in 2022 is actually in many ways, as I've compared it, very similar to what took place in the Roman world. Thank you. Nothing new under the sun, is there? Not really. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, I wanted to look at the uh, covetousness. Well, I think this is a word that is not used too much today. However, there are a number of other words that mean the same thing. We've got materialistic, self-seeking or self-centered, unsatisfied, grudging, resentful, egotistical or discontented. Wanting or desiring things your neighbor has could be his or her partner, perhaps their lifestyle, their cars, their job, his position in the community or sports club, their income. Now, another important scripture is found in Revelation 3 and verse 17. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. You see, today many people have become very rich they believe their money can buy anything so they have no time for others or for God, not knowing all things come from God. So it is important not to let these things get in our way and to think of other people, especially our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Ken. Very true what you're saying. Nick? I mean, as Ken was listing uh, out all those things about covetedness, that goes very well also to put in the picture somebody else's wife. 
because that's what we were uh, talking and uh, um, Brenton was uh, mentioning um, uh, how important it is to keep the family relationship pure. But, you know, these days, people just desire somebody else's uh, wife. And uh, I think that fall under that category of uh, covetousness. And we can learn from from a materialistic point of view uh, how much we are entrenched in this thing, you know, that we want something which somebody else has. And that can fall so easily uh, into the relationship. And unfortunately, as we see the world today going on, this is very desensitized, you know, this aspect. And um, yeah, as we may want a good car, uh, like our neighbors or whatever, then we think it's exactly the same to desire, you know, to have his wife. Uh, there is a saying that says the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. The thing that we need to remember is you still have to go and mow the lawn, don't you, whether it's on your side or the other side. Will? I think that we, we sometimes downplay the seriousness of covetousness. Uh, we must remember that the whole problem of sin began with uh, an angel in heaven, Lucifer, who coveted or desired something that was not uh, in his right to receive. And his rebellion started in heaven. And that was the the spark or the, the cause of all the trouble that we see today. Thank you, Will. It's a good comment. You know, the cardinal sin, isn't it? And the letter in the middle of S-I-N is I. And that's what happens when you take your eyes off the Lord and you look inside and then you're becoming covetousness or you want all these other things. Okay, let's move on. Similarly, Paul then exhorts his audience to remember their leaders. He is not interested in an exercise of recollection. Rather, he wishes that in showing their faithfulness to God, they would obey, submit to and respect their leaders. Within democratic or representative political systems of governance, this sounds rather authoritarian. Should a claim like that be made today? And if so, how should we as members of a worldwide church respond to it? I'm going to pass that to you, Len. Well, thank you very much. I want to read the appropriate verses in a moment, but I'd like to say this. We've been going through all the theology during the previous programs in the Hebrews, but now in chapter 13, it gives practical advice for the church. And we've just heard some things about uh, loving one another and doing good for people, being honourable in marriage and so on, keep your lives free from loving money. These are all good practical pieces of advice. Now we have in verse 7 this. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And there's a little bit more in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. All right, now. Many people regard this as being uh, addressed about political leaders. It may be, but it says here, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. 
So I think that Paul is actually referring to the apostles and others. In fact, he probably goes right back to John the Baptist, who lost his life for the sake of the Lord, Stephen, the first martyr, James, the brother of John, who also was killed, James the just, we don't know much about him. All these people were examples in their fidelity to the Lord. And Paul is pointing his congregation or congregations to these leaders and saying, remember them. I want to just um, ask a question, and I'm going to answer it myself. Remember how? How should these leaders be remembered? And how should our current leaders be remembered? Well, I believe that we should support them because they have their ups and downs in life as anybody else uh, does. We should support them in prayer. Have you ever heard the saying, what did you have for lunch? Oh, we had pasta for lunch. P-A-S-T-O-R, not P-A-S-T-A. That's not supporting one's leaders. Although our leaders may have defects, they still deserve our support. I want to point out just one other thing. There are a number of action words, a number of verbs here in these two verses, and they are Remember, remember the leaders. Consider them. That means to think about their lives and what they go through and so on. And then there's another one which I like, really like, uh, really like, says imitate our leaders. And then in verse 17, it says obey and submit to them. The thing that I like best here is to imitate our leaders. You know, just a couple of chapters before this, that's chapter 11 of Hebrews, you have this list of God's faithful people. Amongst them are many leaders. And here is Paul saying, remember them, consider them, and imitate them, and then obey and submit. So I think it applies to our uh, religious leaders rather than political leaders, because uh, if we imitate some of our political leaders, I know there's some stuff going on uh, at the moment about one politician who's been accused of having illegal sex with somebody and so on. Well, we should be able to imitate our political leaders, but they're human too and they're subject to the same foibles as anybody else. But I think this is a wonderful counsel to imitate these leaders of the past and good people of the present who are our leaders. And if we do that, we can't go wrong. There's just one I don't wish to imitate, a political leader, and at the moment that's uh, Putin. I don't wish to imitate him at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much, Len. I think one other thing we need to do is to pray for our leaders. Yes. And uh, Brenton, you wanted to add something. Yes. I'll confine my remarks to uh, religious leaders. They are human beings just as we are, but can I suggest this? 
Uh, what Len read is actually fairly important. The important bit that we haven't highlighted is the bit they watch over you as they who must give an account. We need to remember when we're critical of our church leadership or or our minister or whoever it is that's leading out in the local church, uh, the division church or the worldwide church, we need to remember one thing. They are accountable to God for the way that they lead us. Now, we can still show them respect. Remember, Paul tells them to be subject to the authorities. Now, Roman uh, political establishment was about as corrupt as you're ever likely to get. But confining these remarks to religious things, I believe that um, those who are placed in charge of us have a greater and more important responsibility to God. We need to remember that first and foremost before we choose to criticise them for whatever they're doing or whatever they're not doing, in our opinion. Thank you, Brenton. Nick? Just very quickly talking about leaders in the church. Um, I believe we need to emphasise straight away in the, in the verse 7 because it said that remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God. I believe this is significant because you can have leaders even in the church who may not represent Jesus, who may not speak the word of God, but they can speak their own understanding. Because later on it says, actually, do not be carried away like with various and strange doctrines. And Paul is referring to something else there, but yeah, we can read further in those passages. I'm not saying that we should not respect the leaders, but we need to be also careful because some leaders can uh, drive you astray from Jesus Christ. And Paul, I believe, was the only one from the disciples or, or from that early church. I couldn't find in the Bible somebody else to say, follow into my footsteps. Because Paul said, follow into my footsteps because I follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think that's the, the punch for us all uh, when we talk about uh, leadership. We must be like the Bereans and check out what everybody says. But yes, thank you, Brenton. Basically, uh, I'd like to add to what Nick said. Thank you, Nick, for that comment. There is an example in Scripture. You find it in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul actually upbraided Peter in front of the believers and said that when the Judaizers are not there, you eat with the Gentiles. Now that the Judaizers have come down, you don't eat with the Gentiles in any way. You are adopting a double standard. Um, whilst I don't believe Paul was saying Peter was no longer a Christian, he was pointing out the hypocrisy of his situation. And I think that that's a fairly important point that we can see in our, our scripture. If we see hypocrisy in the church, Christ called uh, the, um, the priests and rulers hypocrites. But you'll notice at the start of chapter 23, he said, you are to do everything that they teach. In other words, if they're teaching from the word of God, they are the things that you were to follow. You're not to follow necessarily their example, but you to follow, you are to follow the law and the testimonies that have been handed down to you from the time of Moses onwards. I think there has to be a discernment here that's fairly important, Helen. Thank you, Brenton. And uh, Len? It has been said, and I'd like to re-emphasise it, that being a leader has 
greater responsibility than being a follower. Yes. Police, politicians, teachers, ministers, parents, all have a special role to be uh, to be an example to their followers. Uh, police, when you have a corrupt policeman, that doesn't do society any good. A corrupt politician, the same thing. A teacher, even a parent. We need to have good leadership in order to have good followers. Now, I have a little philosophy of my own, and it's this. Any organisation will be as good as its leadership. If the leadership is corrupt, the whole thing will be corrupt. So it's important that our leaders set a good example, and as doing that, we who are followers or under their leadership should support them. If they don't do a good job, then we should counsel them and help them to do a good job, not just criticise. And pray, and pray, and, and pray. pray. And <laughs> pray. Thanks, Thanks Len. I'm going to add on what Len was saying because uh, I think that's also the, the lesson from uh, this passage here, that the tendency is for us all, and in general for people, to criticise those in leadership until they are in the leadership. You know, if they are coming into leadership, then uh, they don't like to be criticized or to be looked uh, upon them with uh, with a critical eye. And that's probably what Paul is, is saying here. And it was mentioned here. If something goes wrong, you know, speak up, you know, uh, address the situation, but respect those people who are in leadership. Because most of all in the church, they are on a voluntary basis. They put a lot of time aside. They are not necessarily paid or um, for what they're doing, they really sacrifice for the good of others. And I believe that's where Paul is is punching here. Thank you, Nick. Okay, Joe, if I can turn to you, please, would you share and comment on um, verse 20 in chapter 13? It tells us who the leaders are and, and share the results of those leaders for us, please. Well, I guess, Helen, it's already been discussed um, at length, and I, I guess I could just reiterate that in verse 20, now this forms part of the benediction, final greetings in chapter 13. And verse 20, as you've asked me to read, it says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And, of course, we know that our leaders are, under shepherds, equip you with every good thing for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now these, we've discussed these under shepherds and the importance of of imitating um, the good under shepherds, the importance of not criticising, not to be, yeah, not to be criticising them or gossiping about them. And that's all true, but we shouldn't be doing that to anybody anyway. The important thing is, though, that to understand that being an under-shepherd is a thankless, hard job. And it's very little, there's very little appreciation um, for lead, anyone in leadership. People don't appreciate the amount of work um, that goes into being a leader. Um, and also a leader's job is very hard these days. Now, if any one of us had received a letter like Hebrews, 
you know, in this modern context would be saying, he's judging, he's judging, you know, how dare he, you know, and all that kind of thing. So it's very hard for our the under-shepherds, our leaders, our church leaders to actually admonish us, to exhort us to do better, to correct us because everything is taken personally and in uh, in, the, in the wrong sense. And rather than submitting to saying, yes, well, let me reconsider this, let me study about this, let me pray about it, you know, and be humble about it, very often the response that our leaders get is like, who's put you, you know, why are you judging me and this kind of thing. But we have to remember that God has placed them in a position where he need, you know, they speak for God on, our, on God's behalf for us to correct us. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But the important thing is that they would, in verse 17, it has the first part's been read. It says here to submit, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Let's not weary our leaders by being resistive, by criticising, by um, sabotaging, by doing myriad of other things, but let us, let us make their work a joy so that they may joy over us and that we may all be part of that um, continuing city when Jesus returns. Um, thank you, Joe, for commenting on the fact that leadership in the church is a thankless task. Um, last Sunday I received a phone call from one of my church members. I think many of our listeners will know that I pastor four churches here in the southeast of South Australia. He said, I just wanted to ring you, Pastor, and let you know how much we appreciated the sermon you preached the other week. Now, that was two weeks ago. And it's interesting, whilst people will at times compliment you or criticise your message at the door, it's another thing given a couple of weeks play where he actually rings and said, my wife and I really... um we really appreciated the message that you preached. I found that interesting because it's the first time in three years that somebody has actually run and said that they appreciated the message that was presented. We're, this is part of the encouragement bit. You, we need to encourage our leaders. It's not yes. building their personal ego up. It's simply encouraging them and saying, keep going. We believe that God is leading you and we're right behind you. Yeah, that's good feedback. Thank you, Brenton. Um, Will, I'm going to give you one of the hardest difficult texts in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13.9. It's another warning from Paul, and Paul this time is regarding strange doctrines and heresies. Would you share with us and comment on that, please? Well, I'm surrounded by some very uh, clever people on this panel, so I feel safe that they'll help me. But let me read the text, Hebrews 13 and verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to leave room for comments by the rest of the panel, but it's it's necessary to emphasize that when the book of Hebrews speaks against anyone seeking salvation through eating and drinking, it does not mean that God is abolishing the biblical principle of the distinction between clean and unclean animals. 
It should not allow us to think that God was changing his mind on what is not suitable for consumption by his people. Instead, there seems to have emerged in the early Christian church, especially through the strong influence of the Gnostics and the Judaizers, the belief that by ritually or ceremonially eating of animal sacrifices, one could actually earn salvation. Now, Paul says there is no eternal merit in participating in these rites. After all, Hebrews teaches us that Jesus' sacrifice had superseded the animal sacrifice requirements. So any distraction from the supreme and once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus is a diversion from the truth that we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace and grace alone. So let me read that text again and listen for the key. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Well, thank you, Will. I think you covered that exceptionally well. Yes, it's, it is a hard text for people to get around, but thank you for bringing out the most important points there. And, um, Joe, I think we carry on with this in Hebrews 13.10. So I'm going to ask you if you could share and comment on that one, please. Certainly. It goes on from what Will has just read out. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, these two are inseparable. These two verses are inseparable because it says it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, meaning partaking of animal sacrifices, which only pointed to Jesus, and I think Will has established that, which is of no benefit to those who do so, because why? Jesus is here. We have no no longer any need of animal sacrifices. We have an altar. This altar is Jesus. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle, those who are still following the ritual sacrifices and all the festivals and all that, those who are still following the shadows, remain in the shadow and they have no right to eat because they don't they're not acknowledging Jesus as their savior they are still stuck in the shadow and have not emerged into the light have not accepted Jesus as their savior and so I think it's it's actually beautiful two verses I'm going to read them again because they're so full of power do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's funny that Paul should talk about the ceremonial system of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is no benefit to those who do so. But we have an altar from which those who minister at the sanctuary, at the temple, at the tabernacle, these things were still going on, have no right to eat. So do not be tempted to go back to that system. You have something far superior, far better. You have Jesus Christ. Anyway, I'll just finish with a little reading that comes from um, from a pamphlet that I've been reading. And it says, this grace, this grace mediated through Christ is an anchor, sure and steadfast, that is fastened to God's throne itself. 
How powerful is that? It is this grace which we receive through the sacrifice of Christ that provides stability and assurance to our hearts. When the heart has been established in this way, it will not be carried about by new doctrines, nor will it drift away from God. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. Cheers. Thank you. That was a good um, quote to read to us. Okay. We are then addressed to go to Jesus, and there's a statement here. It says, outside the camp. And I found that extremely interesting, those words, because it has a far-reaching um, connotation to it. Outside the camp, which seems a strange path to follow, and I'm sure, Len, you could enlighten us on that. So would you please share and, and comment on that? I'd like to say this first. This particular aspect, as will be discussed a little later on, is actually an object lesson for the Hebrew people about Jesus. And um, I'd just like to point out what actually happened. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 11 harks back to the old sacrificial system. And it says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. The offal and the carcass was not to remain inside the camp, and it wasn't just dumped outside the camp. It was actually burnt. And um, I'd like to point out the significance of this. I'm going back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse um, 12, verses 12 to 14. Now, remember, this is the time when the Israelites were on their way from Egypt through to Canaan. And the Lord gave a whole lot of instructions. And this one says, designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself, where you can do number one and number two. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, Dig a hole and cover up your excrement. And I'm reading from the NIV. For the Lord God moves about in your camp to protect you and deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent or turn away from you. In other words, anything that was considered a pollutant was to be put outside the camp so that the camp would remain pure. This made me think of uh, medieval Europe and the problems that occurred with the bubonic plague, otherwise known as the Black, Black Death. There were at least three outbreaks and it caused probably at least the deaths of 50 million people. So what happened in medieval Europe? Well, people uh, often had two-storey houses and they would just dump their wastewater and dump anything just in the street. And so rats and mice and fleas and things like that carried this uh, disease. So the Lord is saying here, and it refers to Jesus later on, and I've got more to say after somebody else has spoken on this, the camp where the people of God are 
must be pure. All pollutants and rubbish had to be taken outside, buried or destroyed by fire. I'd like to go on, but I'm going to wait until we come on to why Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem. What I've just been sharing with you has a direct relationship to Jesus' crucifixion outside Jerusalem or figuratively outside the camp. How about you do that now, Len? I think it's very applicable. Well, I might take over somebody else's um, uh, thing and I don't wish to do that. Well, I was actually going to share part of that as well. You know, I, I was reading in Desire of Ages yesterday where it said Christ suffered without the gate for transgression of the law of God. Adam and Eve were banished from Eden and Christ our substitute was to suffer without the boundaries of Jerusalem. He died outside the gate where felons and murderers were executed. And that was very full of significance. So if you wish to to continue with that, Len, that would be good. And then we'll go on to see what else was outside the camp. All right. Well, as I said before, it points to Jesus, all these rules about pollutants and rubbish to be taken outside the camp uh, refers to Jesus. When Jesus was taken outside the city, the Jewish leaders thought they were cleansing the city of blasphemous impurity. But the reality was far more significant. As Jesus was taken out of the city to be crucified, he was taking their impurity on himself and so deflecting God's wrath away from God's people onto himself. Now, with the old system, the high priest carried the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies were burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And there's an admonition that I'd like to share. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore for us. For here... We do not have an enduring enduring city, but we're looking for a city to come. So in Jesus being crucified outside the camp, it really is saying he was taking, he was bearing the sins of the people, including us, because that's where sin should be. It should be outside and not inside God's people. Thank you, Len. Very much appreciate that. And Ken, if you can just um, just t- share us from, I think it's numbers five, two and three, who else was outside the camp? Share and comment on that if you don't mind, please. Okay, well, uh, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and every one that hath an issue and whoever is defiled by the dead, both male and female shall be put out. Without the camp shall you put them, they that defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. Now, here we read in the Old Testament that all unclean things, like Len was talking about, uh, lepers, for example, were put outside the camp or city so as not to pollute others. The place outside the gate was considered very unclean as animals were burned there, 
also criminals and blasphemers were executed there. And even Jesus was killed outside the city as the Jewish leaders thought he was a blasphemer. So it is in our own lives. If we tolerate or commit sin, it restricts God's presence in our own lives and we may miss out on blessings. Well, thank you, Ken. You've covered that very, very well. Appreciate that. And Alicia, let's just move on to see what did Jesus actually take on him when he was crucified outside the camp, please? Let's comment on Hebrews 13, 12. I may read the the verse in Hebrew uh, chapter 13, verse 12, which it says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. If I may go back a little bit, uh, as Len mentioned, uh, a variety uh, of what happened outside the camp. But um, we, we also know from uh, Leviticus and uh, First Kings and Acts that outside the gate was the most impure of the whole camp. The carcasses of the sacrificial animals were burned there. Lepers, as Ken was reading, also were excluded from the camp. Blasphemers and other criminals were executed there. These regulations presupposed that the presence of God was within the camp. So that anything that was impure was cast outside because God was unwilling to see any unclean or indecent thing in it. But Jesus suffered on the cross outside Jerusalem. This emphasizes the shame that was cast upon him because he was officially condemned as one who had blasphemed the name and therefore was repudiated by Israel and executed outside the world. So Jesus was cast outside the camp as a shameful, unclean, or indecent thing. Paul, however, exhorts believers to follow Jesus outside the gate, enduring the shame that he endured. This also was the part Moses followed, who chose to bear the reproach of Christ instead of the treasures of Egypt. So in Hebrew, here, in this verse, suggests that God's presence is now outside the camp. So the action of, of following Jesus outside the camp means not only bearing his reproach, shame, but also going forth to him. So Paul invites here to follow Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith, implicitly inviting them also to consider their present suffering a momentary discipline that will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So they are leaving behind a corrupted city or camp in search of the city that is to come, which architect is God himself. Thank you, Ligia. So not only did he take our sins, he took all our shame and our guilt as well. Brenton, we've only got a few moments left. Yes, we have indeed, Helen. Two things uh, appear to me to be fairly important in regard to what we're looking at here. 
by going outside, as everyone has touched on, we're actually doing something that is against what our human nature would find acceptable. In other words, Christ being crucified outside the camp shows us one thing. It shows us that salvation is completely from God because it's not something we would naturally respond to in a favourable way. I believe also it shows another thing. Um, if Christ had to go outside the camp to be crucified in the worst possible humiliating situation, it should cause us as panel and as listeners to reflect on what sin is and how sin is so heinous and so um, grave as far as God is concerned. If the Son of God, equal with God in power and the creator of the world, had to go outside the camp to be crucified, and we have to, according to Matthew 16, 24, we have to take up our cross daily and follow him, we should account it a privilege because it's something that the average person doesn't accept. That means that our salvation is completely secured by the fact that Christ did something unthinkable, according to the way human beings think, in order to save us. And it also gives us a brief window into how God sees sin, that this was necessary. Thank you, Brenton. So we need to turn our back on a corrupted camp, don't we, and walk towards, as we just said, the continuing city. Well, thank you, panel, very much for all your comments. Let me finish with a quote, if I may. Um, the union between Christ and his people is to be living, true and unfailing, resembling the union that exists between the Father and the Son. This union is the fruit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All true children of God will reveal to the world their union with Christ and with their brethren. Those in whose hearts Christ abides will bear the fruit of brotherly love, which is the title of our study today. They will realize that as members of God's family, they are pledged to cultivate, cherish and perpetuate Christian love and fellowship in spirit, words and action. And so I'd like if you we can close our eyes and uh, Will, would you please close with prayer for us on the study? Thank you. Certainly. Lord, as we come to the end of our study of the book of Hebrews, we know that there have been many appeals for us to commit ourselves to the Lord of righteousness and to live for him who gave his life for us. We invite you, Lord, to dwell in our hearts by faith and prepare us to inherit the reward of all those champions of faith we have studied about. Thank you for inviting us into so great a salvation, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone, for um, bringing your contribution to the understanding of the book of Hebrew for the um, Bible studies, which we had for uh, quite a few weeks. And uh, I believe uh, these were really uh, important teachings for the days we live in, because as we uh, talked um, and alluded uh, about the importance of the teachings of Hebrew in the last days, I believe we learned a lot of things. I think it's time to start from the beginning. What that means, I'm inviting you, dear listener, to join us again. We are going to have another series of studies in the book of Genesis. And if I will uh, just bring to your attention a couple of the, the questions or topics which we are going to address is the roots of Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, the promise, Jacob, 
and so on and so forth. I believe will be great study in the book of Genesis. Please join us again and be blessed. Until then, may God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.